And I think the best leaders are those that say, this is what we're doing. And this is the logic behind what we're doing. Right. And then when presented with a different and more compelling logic based on new and uh, perhaps previously unavailable information, a good leader would say, I know that I had said this and we've learned something new and therefore we're concluding something different. Welcome to the Supermanagers podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today's guests are Stephen Goldbach and Jeff Tuff. Stephen is the Chief Strategy Officer, and Jeff is the Principal of Consulting at Deloitte. They have written this book. It's called Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. And we discuss this book and a lot about human behavior in general during this podcast. We talk about all of the different things, the human behaviors, flaws, experiences, and how you can use an understanding of those and tying that back into leadership. We talk about experimentation in much detail, why it's better than just studying things, and why leaders should always pair curiosity with action. A lot of the experiences from Stephen and Jeff could have stopped many disaster scenarios in the corporate world. Um, They could have stopped them from happening. And we talk about a few examples of these during this episode. We talk about how being a decisive leader isn't actually always great and how to truly incorporate cognitive diversity into the way that you operate. If you find this episode helpful to your leadership journey, uh, send us a note. Um, You can message me on Twitter. My handle is at Aiden, or you could use the hashtag supermanagers on any of the social channels. And finally, don't forget that we're creating this Slack group of managers. You can send us a note to supermanagers at fellow.app if you'd like to be part of that community. And without further ado, uh, please welcome Stephen and Jeff on episode 82 of the Supermanagers podcast. Stephen, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us, Aiden. Very excited, uh, very excited to ha- have you both on, on the show. You've both had such interesting careers and uh, you know, you've, you've now written this, this book called Provoke How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. And uh, congratulations that I hear it's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Yep, we were blessed to be on uh, the list for a number of weeks. So we were grateful for everyone's support on that dimension. Yeah, that's amazing. And so is this uh, is this like a, a first book that you two have worked on together? Uh, no, and and the next question is probably, why'd you do it again then? So <laughs> yeah. we, uh, St- Steve and I are actually, we're longtime colleagues. We've been working together for 
I'm not sure we've ever actually nailed down the exact amount of time, but somewhere around 20 or 25 years. We didn't actually start um, writing in earnest together until about five or six years ago. But our first book, uh, which is a book called Detonate, came out in May of 2018. And uh, for our sins, we um, seem to have put up with each other well enough that we decided to give it another go for this one. But thankfully, the, our readers seem to uh, enjoy the outputs. Yeah, no, this is, uh, I mean, this is awesome. What, what a great topic. And so you both have very senior positions at Deloitte. You've worked with a lot of companies. I'm excited to dig in. One of the questions that we, we like to start with is uh, to almost maybe not necessarily embarrass, but to bring up some some mistakes. And so we love to start with mistakes and errors. And I'd love to know from each of you, what were maybe some of the things that when you first started leading teams or were in a leadership position, what were some of the things that maybe um, some of the early errors, mistakes, or different ways that you used to do things that maybe you do less of today you know when i when i um saw this question before and aiden because you were kind enough to to give us a couple prompts in advance i actually had not thought about this as a topic or as a question and i I, my knee-jerk reaction was to say well geez i never did anything anything wrong and it was a smooth ride all the way through but i actually it forced me to think to uh, back to my first managing position and i did made it make a mistake and it was a glaring mistake which in retrospect should have been dead obvious, but without staring, without um, going through my entire backstory, I like to think of myself as being a different type of thing. when I just arrived in consulting 30 years ago, I had a pretty non-traditional background, a very non-traditional experiences as far as the typical strategy consulting world was concerned. And it was a big deal to me as a junior employee, as an analyst to show up as my authentic, uh, authentic self and to make sure that um, the little bit of kind of hippie bohemian that I had in me was allowed to be at work and that I was able to work on my own hours and work on my own terms. And I made a lot of noise about that. And, and to their credit, my managers at the time let me do that and let me prove that I could get my work done while still living my own life. Um, I do remember when I first had the responsibility as a what we called back in, in the days at the company where Steve and I came from, Monitor Group, what we called module leaders. When I had my first module leader opportunity, I unfortunately forgot what it meant and how important it was to bring your authentic self and be allowed to be your authentic self. And I found myself actually dictating the way work was going to be done and not quite the hours the teams were going to work, but I was very heavy handed in declaring what I wanted to see and what my expectations were. And it really constrained a lot of the teams that I was leading at the time from doing things their way and being able to demonstrate that there are different ways of doing things than, than, than what I did. So I, Having getting clobbered, uh, clobbered both upwards and downwards from that experience, I got over that pretty quickly. But it, it, in retrospect, it was a really important lesson. And, you know, it's something that I have carried through to me today. And, and even in the writing that Steve and I do together, we, we bring very different selves to the table. But mixing those selves together seems to work pretty well. And so I was going to ask you, you know, how did you come upon the realization? But it sounds like you, you heard about, uh, I guess you, you heard complaints from both the top and bottom, like you said. Complaints, but also comments about myself that just didn't ring true, that, that, like that I was heavy handed and too controlling and too dictatorial. And I was I was like, well, hold on a sec, though. I aren't, I'm not any of those things. I'm this hippie free spirit guy. And it made it did me lead me to reflect that I had been not acting as myself in those moments. And Steve, do you agree that Jeff is a hippie free spirit guy? <laughs> I was going to just resist the temptation. Jeff is absolutely Jeff is absolutely a free spirit, and the thing that God bless Jeff when you get to know him, he actually listens incredibly well and will take it in, into account. I think the the thing with 
uh, I find interesting about the way people react to leaders is that they often don't necessarily believe or take them at face value. So when they say something like, I'm open to different perspectives, they assume the opposite. Like I'm not open to different perspectives or I'm not flexible. You know, I think it's just, it's just interesting. So Jeff is absolutely what he describes, even if some people don't always experience him um, in that way. But that's important to know. I think someone, someone gave me the good advice one time. It's really important to know what your blind spots are. It's interesting. As I thought about this question, Aiden, um, I had a similar story. So I'm not going to share the story because it's similar to Jeff's, which was sort of about, you know, when you first get to be a leader, you kind of want to micromanage because you think that that's what leadership is about, like telling people what to do. Um, and for me, the lesson has been, but I, then I think people start to get away from, you know, that enough and don't, don't give enough feedback and direction. They just sort of let people wander off and do their own thing. And I, I, I'm increasingly of the view that good leaders do work too. The leaders who just assume that the work gets done by everyone else and they're just, to some extent, the generals oftentimes forget what it's like to be in the other person's shoes. And so I think it's really important. And the lesson that I've, I've tried to bring is that you probably overcorrect when you first become a leader to do more micromanaging because you feel on the hook and there's pressure. And usually you're a junior to middle manager. So therefore, the pressure from above is still pretty high. And as you get more senior, you tend to err in the opposite way where you just tell people what to do and assume that they're going to do it well. But I think oftentimes being a good leader is about demonstrating what good looks like by doing it yourself. And I, I think that that's a, that's a really important lesson to learn. And for what it's worth, I make mistakes all the time. Um, and one of the things I hope you know to bring with the folks that I'm uh, working with is the, the, the willingness to be corrected both in the moment and over time. Um, I don't think there's ever any person who's perfected leadership. Uh, and so we all want to both, I would say both Jeff and I want to bring humility uh, to whatever we're doing because God knows we're not perfect. Yeah, no, I think that that is a um, perfect, uh, perfect explanation and answer. And I agree with you that uh, everybody makes mistakes. It's it's really, really hard. It's more sometimes more art than science. So um, I want to talk about the book. One of the questions I had is like, it, it's such a fascinating topic. How did you decide to write about it? Like what series of events led you to write about this topic? Well, so I, in some ways, Aiden, this the journey actually started way back when with Detonate because it was after our first book came out and we kind of stayed in touch and shared ideas that this book came about more naturally. But, you know, the, the original impetus to to work together to start writing about something, honestly, was just because we kind of wanted to do something more than just go deliver client work together. And it was Steve's idea originally. And he was very dismissive of my of my first idea of how we might write together when I offered him a fantastic um, co-blogger po- uh, or a... Um, co-author opportunity, guest blogger on my, on my blog, but uh, he actually did push us to, to do something bigger and better. And detonate was indeed bigger and better, but, but you know, the, the, if, if you go at the heart of what both books are about, they're actually just about our experiences with people through the years. And, you know, we're, we, we have been in the field of client service, me for my entire career, Steve for the vast majority of his, and we've had the opportunity over time to, not just work with organizations and 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 think about strategically how to reposition organizations and help them achieve their goals, et cetera, but work with the people and and really understand individual human motivations 
around change and looking forward for new opportunities and and um, and and ways of growing in a way that actually does create advantage. We're both strategists at heart, interested in helping companies create advantage. And and as Steve and I first started talking about the ideas with Detonate, you know, we shared client experiences. We tried tried to identify some patterns and. Pretty quickly, we were able to identify some things that we saw all the time across some of the world's most successful companies, the world's most famous executives. They were all still prone to the same human foibles that prevent people from being being able to be more effective managers and being able to advance in the face of uncertainty. And so, you know, this started five or six years ago. Um, people continue to be human beings, as far as we can tell, and they, we continue to have observations about them. I think we've what we've done with Provoke, the new book, is we've turn from the topic of the first book, which was about blowing out the playbooks of the past in order to progress, and instead taking a future orientation to say, how do we take individual leadership characteristics and capabilities and, and create a future in which we have advantage? One of the things that I have as a quote is, most leaders today, when faced with uncertainty, choose to study it and study it and study it until it resolves itself and becomes certain. Um, is one of the, I mean, is this one of the, the fatal human flaws that you discuss? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a product of the fatal human flaws. Um, so the, the, the quick version of the fatal human flaws is that there's a number of cognitive biases that when in combination with the tendencies that large scale organizations have and how they interact with each other, they form blinders that prevent people that prevent organizations from seeing the shift in trends from a matter of if they're going to happen to a matter of when they're going to happen. And the 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 biases that we've got uh, are things like the status quo bias, where we have a preference for the status quo or the availability bias, where we select data that is easily accessible um, in the way we the way we work because we either see it every day or it's in our social media feeds and the algorithms there don't exactly provide a lot of diversity of thought. And so we tend to have patterns um, in, rec in recognizing things. And because of these blinders, we don't see things. And so we, when we get presented with anomalies, um, we want the natural tendency is to, instead of saying, boy, that anomaly might be true, and what might I do about it? The tendency is to say, well, that can't possibly be true because it doesn't conform to my pre-existing worldview. Even when presented with considerable evidence that it might be growing and getting more prevalent, um, the, the, the biases that we have stop us in our tracks from actually saying, okay, well, maybe we might be wrong uh, to saying, to saying, uh, well, I need more information before I do anything about it. And so we believe that instead of studying, a better approach is actually try to provoke it a little bit. And why that? Because things that are truly uncertain are not studyable based on looking at the past. And therefore, the best way to figure out what something is, is to poke it a little bit and see if it moves. And see what the contours are. But if you can't see, if you if you're in the dark, fumbling your way around something, you kind of start to feel for where the walls are. And we think that that's sort of the thing that you need to do 
with matters of uncertainty, that action is going to actually get you better learning than quote unquote studying in the way that organizations tend to do it. So, so that's really interesting. I'd love to dive into an example or a story of something that you've seen with uh, maybe one of the clients you've worked with. Steve, I, th- I think you got to take the floor on this one because you you opened our book with this with a real life story you had um, about a about an executive that uh, that was that fell prey to those fatal flaws. Yeah, this this is so. Uh, this story, to some extent, was so um, perfect. You know, people think it's made, to some extent made up, but this actually happened in uh, in and around 2007, 2008. It's been sufficiently long ago that the precise date uh, it's it's sort of in the in that time frame. Um, we had done some work in the video content, internet, telephony space. And we had done some customer research and we got this curious result where there was a really small segment of customers who were behaving in a way that we hadn't seen before. They wanted super high quality internet, but didn't want any of the video programming that was often bundled with internet access. And they didn't want a a phone either. So they didn't want the proverbial triple play or double play. They just wanted the good internet, please. And Typically, uh, in this particular industry, when customers said they didn't want something, the reflexive instinct from executives, well, maybe they can't afford it. Uh, maybe there's a income correlation that ought to be uh, explored, but it turned out that they, these were not folks with lower incomes than average. They skewed a little younger, but they weren't necessarily uh, lower income. And so we started just being curious about like what what what's causing this behavior, and this of course now that we we've seen the rest of the movie play out, this was the first instance of cord cutting behavior, where people said I can get the content I want from you know watching it online in the way in which I want to watch it at the time I want to watch it, and I don't want to pay for. Uh, a whole bundle of programming where I w- might watch a small percentage of it. But when we took it to uh, one of our, uh, the the client that we were working for asked us to take it to a couple other uh, other companies to get their perspectives on it. We took it to one and they literally said, 1.75%, why would I care? And it was to some extent, um, you know, indicative of the kind of response. It, it demonstrated a lot of the biases that, it demonstrated the affect heuristic bias where small things don't seem to influence our points of view. And it demonstrated the overconfidence bias. But if you had sort of tugged on the thread, just even being curious about it, you would have quickly arrived at business models today that are worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars like Netflix or, or, other, uh, or, or other services. And this particular company, it's not like it went out of business, but it certainly lost lots of opportunity to get out ahead of what uh, now became uh, a pervasive trend. And, and this, Aiden, I'd say it, it was such a perfect story for the book in, in a lot of different ways. But but one of the ways beyond demonstrating the affect heuristic bias and some of the fatal flaws we talked about, my, my guess is, and we don't talk about this explicitly in the book, but my guess is what the executive did either actually or proverbially is put his head back down and said, you know what, I'm going to pay attention to the, to the customer segments that matter. I'm going to analyze the data I have on hand. I'm going to figure out how to continue to incrementally advance the business model I have today. And I'm just not going to worry about that 1.75%. Imagine a different reaction where the executive might have said, you know what, I don't think that really matters, but I'm going to go find out. 
And I'm going to go, I'm actually going to go long. I'm going to send some ethnographers into the homes of this 1.75%, four or five of them, and just see what's going on. Try to figure out, is there something real here? Is there like what's underneath the, some of the requests they have? We don't know if that might have, have, have set this company on a different course, but it certainly would have been a very different reaction and provoked a reaction from those from those early cord cutters that, that would have given this, this company way more information than they got by putting their head back down and looking at the at their dominant customer segments. Hey there, just a quick note before we move on to the next part. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing one-on-one meetings. But here's the thing. We all know that one-on-one meetings are the most powerful, but at the same time, the most misunderstood concept and practice in management. That's why we've spent over a year compiling the best information, the best expert advice into this beautifully designed 90 plus page ebook. Now don't worry, it's not single spaced font, you know, lots of text. There's a lot of pictures. It's nice, easily consumable information. We spent so much time building it. And the great news is that it's completely free. So head on over to fellow.app slash blog to download the definitive guide on one-on-ones. It's there for you. We hope you enjoy it. And let us know what you think. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. So this is from like a, a business context, but we get information like this, like managers and leaders everywhere. I mean, we get information like this where someone brings up something and it may seem like a, a smaller problem and maybe you ignore it because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's one person out of a hundred at the company. But what you're saying is that people should be, stay curious for a little bit longer. Stay curious for a little bit longer, but do something about it. Like go, go figure out a way to add contours to the uncertainty, not because it's knowable, not because you're going to be able to resolve with, with 100% confidence what's going to happen, but because by, by engaging, by exploring, you will get more information. And, and in some circumstances, you might actually influence the outcomes. And so there's a whole lot, by the way, that is going on in our, even our personal lives today, not to mention our professional lives, having to do with new variants of COVID. You know, we th- there is one reaction to this, which is we either write it off and say, yeah, it's, the variant will sort itself out. Where we'll hear from the from the um, from here in the U.S. the CDC um, pretty soon that the that we're covered by the vaccines and we'll be okay. And I'll just kind of wait and see. Uh, but there are other things that we can do that either can take more protective measures or different decisions we can make to. Um, whatever, our, whatever we may be doing in our lives, this, by the way, is heavy on my mind right now because my family and I have an international trip planned in three weeks. And so I'm trying to think about how to act in the face of this uncertainty in a way that allows me to make good decisions. But uncertainty is everywhere around us these days, not just because of COVID. It's a reality of our personal lives and our professional lives. And we need to start to learn to act in the face of it. And, and act in small ways to provoke those reactions that Steve talked about before. I think that makes a lot of sense. And so I, let's talk about just uh, decisiveness. You said, I, I think, Steve, you once said that decisive, you wish that decisiveness was not a characteristic of leadership. Um, I'd love for you to maybe explain that, because like, I feel like we, we tend to look at leaders who are decisive um, favorably. Yeah, we tend to we do tend to fetishize decisiveness as like, oh, obviously this leader's leaderly if they're highly decisive. And I, when I when I make that when I make that statement, I don't say that I think decisiveness is necessarily a bad thing. I think that decisiveness that leads to an unwillingness to adopt a different point of view in the face of different data 
is a, you know, is a, is, is a challenging thing. I think the best leaders are those that say, this is what we're doing. And this is the logic behind what we're doing. Right. And then when presented with a different and more compelling logic based on new and uh, perhaps previously unavailable information, a good leader would say, I know that I had said this and we've learned something new and therefore we're concluding something different. I feel like we've, we've got this hallmark of leadership that you're decisive and therefore you're infallible. And I think, no, the world is moving far too fast for any leader to feel like they're always going to have all the information. And so I think being authentic and saying, I'm making information and this is the information I'm basing it on. And this is what we're learning. I I think for what it's worth going back to COVID for a second, I think there's been a lot of mistakes in how we've communicated about the choices that uh, have been made and the policies that have been set that presented the policies as this is, it's a hundred percent this, and it's always this. And I think that the, when you stray away from communicating about nuance, you're to some extent assuming that your audience is stupid. And I think that's never a good idea. I think sharing your logic, sharing the why, and when things change, being willing to admit it is, is the hallmark of a good leader. And I've seen that. That's not a political statement. I, I've seen that mistake from, uh, from every angle uh, in, this, uh, in this pandemic. You know, one of the one of the things that, that we hear often is the it's it's important for people to understand the why, and I can see the a subsequent benefit of this is that it also allows you to make decisions, but also when presented with new data, if if people understand the framework that you used to arrive at something, you don't have to be uh, let's say someone who flip flops and can't make up their mind. Uh, you actually arrive at things in a very you know, logical way. And, and if you can explain that, if people can buy, buy that, uh, then if data does change, it, it, it's not hard, you know, for, for you to be, be able to make a different decision. I think that's exactly right. One of the questions then is, you know, going back to the, um, going back to the original example that you brought up and, and used a number, I think, did you say 1.75%? Um, and so I guess, would a potential course of action uh, in that case, Ben, let's monitor this number. And if in the next six months it goes to 2%, uh, then potentially do something. I, I guess like the question I'm asking is like, how fast should you try and start doing things? Or, or when do you do this provoking? Because again, we get so much signal all, all day or so, so much noise all day. It's, it's sometimes hard to figure out what the signal is. Yeah. So you're actually asking, first of all, it's a very good question. And, and it's a, it's a multi-layered question because the, and I'm going to, I'm going to answer your direct question, but then the, the obvious underlying one is, okay, so what signals do you need to pay attention to and what ones do you actually need to worry about versus not? And, and we'll come back to that afterwards. But um, I actually think it would have been a bad decision to say, okay, we're going to wait and, and monitor this and decide whether to take action once it reached some cert- certain threshold level of, of concern without an underlying hypothesis about what was going on and why we need to pay attention to it. And so going back to my build on, on Steve's story, I think the right action in the moment, and it would have been then at the 1.75% within that quarter, was to, was to go and explore it in more detail and explore it by getting as close as possible to the individual users that were behind that to, to better understand and form some high, hypotheses about how, how this might impact your business. If, if you understand it more um, at that stage, then you can start to say, okay, 
not just I'll wait till it's randomly 2%, 5%, 10%, but you know, if if actually what's going on here is that these people are showing signs of being uh, of actually not wanting bundled services like we've had in the past, but they just want super fast internet, then when this reaches some proportion of our market, we need to start exploring what it would look like to create that offer. And it may be 2%, it may be 5%, but you, you'll know if you have an underlying hypothesis, you know what that threshold is going to be and you know why you're paying attention to that threshold because then you can take action on, on essentially in, in a way that will create advantage for yourself. If you just set some arbitrary number to say, we're gonna wait and see when we get there and then start exploring it, then in all likelihood, it, especially with the impact of exponentials these days, you're probably pushing decisions out too late to actually do something about them. I guess one of the questions then is um, you talk about uh, the concept of diversity and, and how it can help you expose, well, help expose more information, allowing you to act uh, sooner, faster. Um, what are your thoughts around creating cognitive diversity for leadership teams? Well, maybe me. I just want to go back to why cognitive diversity is the antidote to some of the challenges that we've been articulating here in terms of seeing uh, the future. So, cognitive diversity has been proven to be a effective way to get to more uh, better solutions, particularly for complex and novel problems. It's been there's been tremendous work by Scott Page and a number of his contemporaries. Uh, in the in the cognitive psychology and the leadership field, um, and so we we're quoting their work. We're not. This is not uh, original uh, original thinking. H however, why does it happen? Why is cognitive diversity uh, better? So those biases are biases because we have uh, our human biases cause us to pick different data that we deem important right, with all the different information that's available to us, and also process it differently and therefore draw a different conclusion. So we can't possibly pay attention to every signal or every bit of information that we get. And so therefore we very quickly process what we think is important and what we think is unimportant. And our brain does this um, without even knowing it. Um, and that's the, the, that's the reason these are cognitive biases. Um, that that if you've got a cognitively diverse team, you will select different bits of data that you're seeing in the world and you'll process it differently and you might arrive at different solutions. But this allows you at least to have a much better informed of the real problem because people are picking different elements. And that's been proven like you'll get better economic forecasts, for example, if you add a theater major to the forecasting team rather than a sixth or seventh economist. Um, you just you just do. Where does cognitive diversity come from? It comes from real world diversity, diversity in upbringing, where you grew up, how you were raised, your your lived experiences, which it, which is very different by race and ethnicity. And so, therefore, as you create, if you the, one of the ways you can create cognitively diverse teams is to go get real world diversity and put it on your team. But you have to pair it with inclusivity. And the reason why it must be paired with inclusivity is because if some of the voices feel like they actually can't speak up, then you're not going to get the benefit of what they might be seeing differently or how they might be processing it differently. So that's um, the, the, the rationale for why cognitive diversity get, uh, helps you get to better outcomes as it relates to these you know, novel problems that we're seeing. 
that is one of the best explanations of like the business case for diversity that uh, I've ever heard. Uh, it, it, it is so true that depending on who you are, I you know I always talk about my brother and I, for example, were very different, although we had a very similar upbringing, so maybe not. But uh, we'll watch a, the same movie and and you know have have different conclusions based on what happened. And so we also work together, so it actually does benefit. We see completely different things, and then we get a more holistic picture by putting those two things together. There's an interesting observation, what you said that I, I, I want to call it because I've never thought of it before. You know, it always, um, Jeff will laugh because he's got a creative writing background and probably has studied lots of works of literature. It, it When I was a young, like high school student, I was always um, amazed at the way, uh, and amazed in not a good way, like sort of mildly annoyed at, you know, the degree to which we would study, you know, great works of literature and draw out all the different allegory and, 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 and things that might have the, the, the writer might have embedded in it. But when you, when you think about it, uh, the reason why these are great works of literature might be because they so represent society well that different people from different backgrounds can see different things in them. And if you think about the qualities of an artist to paint a picture of what the real world might look like, the real world is really complicated and diverse and multifaceted. And when you take a very simplistic view, you might reach one audience and not another, but great works of literature tend to people find something in them. And so maybe that's why I just, as you said that Aiden, that, that, that made me think of that. So I'd be curious if either of you that, have any. That was a very quick extrapolation from watching the same movie to the great works of literature. But thank you for thank you for supporting the uh, those of us out here with English degrees, Steve. But <laughs> as you as you might imagine, I agree with that observation. Um, and and I do think it's interesting, Aiden, that the, to call out the same principles that Steve was talking about applying to individuals from the same family. And it and it I, I think it does really um, it it drives home the reality that there's no way to control perfectly for the right cognitive diversity because it can come from anywhere, but you can actually increase the odds that you'll have cognitive diversity by making sure that you have people from different back backgrounds who look different, who act differently, who believe different things at the same table, helping contribute to decisions. It's so important. And it's one of those things that I, I, I was chatting with uh, another guest on the show. It's the, it's a sort of thing that you can eventually realize as a leader but it will take you a long time to get there because I think again, like new leaders might say, might fall into the trap of hiring people that are like them, um, and you only ever realize that that's bad once you start working with other teams and saying, "Hey, like this other team I'm a part of, I'm exposed to all these new ideas and these new ways of doing things." And only then will you, th you know, maybe realize that, "Hey, maybe I should have a more diverse team myself." Uh, so it's, uh, I think, uh, this is a very good point. And, and obviously if, uh, if people can learn this from the get go, uh, they will just build better teams. Uh, one thing I did want to also talk about is just, uh, human behavior and how understanding human behavior is really, really necessary. If you want to scale a large organization, um, I'm curious, uh, like how do you, how do people do that when you say like learn or study human behavior more? Well, so how you do it and why you do it are, are two different parts of the question, but let me see if between the two of us, we can address both of those. So first of all, I'd say the reason Steve and I are, and I'll call, I've called myself publicly a behavioralist, I'll call him one now as well, but we do believe in 
human behavior as I think, and this may actually have been a line in detonate, but as the basic subatomic element of business and change in business. If ultimately when change happens, and we're usually focused on positive change, then someone somewhere is doing something differently than they have historically. It's just a reality. I don't care how digital a business you are these days. In order for change to happen, someone's got to change something they're doing or some collection of people or some segment of people needs to change what they're doing. So if you want to strip away all the, all the unnecessary process and unnecessary activities in a business and get to the heart of how do you advance whatever your, whatever your objective is, then what you should be aiming for is number one, understanding all the behaviors in your, what I'll call a value system. So for, for many profit-oriented companies, the creation of economic value is their purpose and they wanna get paid for that, that economic value. And there is a value chain, sometimes stretching outside the four walls of the organization from suppliers all the way through to the end market, which constitutes how they create value for the business. That value chain is made up of a whole bunch of people and they sometimes when we talk about behave, human behavior, people think we're just talking about end market customers, but there are lots of other humans in value chains. There are partners and suppliers and employees, and in some situations, regulators, and there's all sorts of other people in the mix that you have to consider. But if as a business, you can, say, you can understand, number one, who are the people in that business system? Number two, where will one type of behavioral change better advantage me than another type of behavioral change? And that sounds like a massive combinatorial challenge, but actually most companies know where the economic hotspots of their business are enough to know where to focus. But then you can actually do the math. Like if I get customers to pay two percentage point more for this product versus getting our suppliers to drop their cost by one percentage point, where's, where's the value gonna come from? Then disproportionately align your resources on focusing on driving those behaviors. Like that's, that's the definition of really unencumbered success. If you can do those things, then, then you're gonna be successful. But if any of us think about how much of the activity on any given day we put into understanding human beings and understanding which behaviors will be advantageous and how to change those behaviors, I guarantee you it's minuscule for, for most people because it's just not what the business of business is these days. And we think that's really, a, a, in many ways, a, a waste of resource. I'd love to dig into an example. Is, is there something that comes to mind where you've seen someone or a company do this or some organization do this successfully? Most people find it not particularly, well, it doesn't make people happy when you take a really successful company and you highlight them. Um, but the company that I think does this incredibly well um, is a a Amazon. But I'll point to some very specific things so people can take reference to just like what they discovered, like the fundamental um, behavioral discovery that allowed Amazon to go from you know, successful focused uh, company to wildly successful in a lot of different dimensions, I think was the notion that anytime there is friction in a buying process, then that, that, that leads to just less uh, optimal outcome. So the, whether it's the one click button or whether it's the notion that I want to, I care more about the observation that I care more about knowing when my product is coming than it being there immediately and I get and get control or I don't actually need to talk to anybody or see the product. I just need to know that I can easily return it um, if it's the case. I mean, 
they eventually bought Zappos, but Zappos was another one where people were classically saying, who's ever going to buy shoes on the, on the internet because you need to try them on, right? It was like, well, we'll ship you, you know, eight pairs of shoes and you can try them all on and ship them back. Um, it turns out that people prefer that. So I think they, it starts with a hypothesis about what would be better for human beings, like not because there's data about it, but because they say like, people don't really love going to the store, do they? They prefer to do other things with their family. And if we can free up that time and show them this better way, but I need to show them. And so I, I think that Amazon has been um, a great demonstrator of that principle of there's just gotta be a better way uh, for humans. And they've done that consistently. Look at how they dealt with their Whole Foods acquisition during the pandemic. I mean, the, the, the way they did pickup and delivery service, um, I think probably ingratiated a lot of customers when that became super important to have contactless delivery. So I, I would I would call them out as someone who's taken a very human centered approach, even though they're often viewed as like the data company. It's extraordinarily human centric. That is uh, that is super uh, interesting to point it out that way. I know that like I've also heard um, I guess uh, Jeff Bezos talk about things like other things that humans are always going to want. Like who's who's not going to want lower prices all the time? And so just baking that into the the business model, or who doesn't want faster shipping? Um, but you know, it, it made me think about something else that we started the discussion with. So we started about the. Um, you know, when we, we, we were talking about when Jeff was saying may, maybe he was a little bit dictatorial in those early days of management. And, you know, when I think about just understanding, you know, humans at, at a very basic level, like to take the same approach of like really understanding humans, I think like humans crave autonomy and flexibility and all, all these sorts of things. Uh, if you kind of maybe understand, um, those things at a deep level, maybe it actually allows you also to be a better manager and incorporate um, and optimize for allowing people to have those things. Yeah, I, I, so I, I would say that's true, but within reason. So it's it's good to know the it's good to know the general trends and the general realities of what it means to be human, but without the specificity of what actually matters to individuals, either in managerial moments where you're one on one working with someone who may have a different style from yours, or at a customer segment level or what have you, you have to be ready to hear and see the nuance because there are, as far as I can tell, except for some very metaphysical ones, there are no immutable laws about human beings. We are, we are actually different and we act differently and we act surprisingly in certain situations and we will increasingly act surprisingly as we work in a world of uncertainty. So we have to know, the, we have to, know to your point, Aiden, the, the general rules, the general realities of what people are looking for, but also be ready to pay attention to the nuance. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's good cautionary advice. Um, so we have talked about uh, a lot of different things. I mean, we started with uh, with some some mistakes. We talked about uncertainty, decisiveness, diversity. Um, we talked about like really understanding human behavior. So uh, it's been a very wide ranging discussion that I've uh, really enjoyed. One of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests on the show is for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft. Are there any tips, tricks, or parting words of wisdom that uh, you'd leave them with? I would say my, the, the, the one thing I would, I, I, I kind of pride myself on doing. Um, and I would say uh, is probably 
there's no downside to is looking for ways to incorporate new things into your worldview. So when you're like, and that requires you to be curious about it. And so constantly, like, don't have a stance about the world that you think explains everything, right? And I think the the more experience we get, the more we think we've figured everything out. People who are have a, a learning and a growth mindset uh, adopt is, boy, there might be something I'm missing and look for ways to incorporate new developments in the world into your view and, and test your test your hypothesis about does this conform or not? Like actually challenge yourself to say like, oh, is this new bit of data conform to it? Is it explained by it? Or do I have to rethink my, rethink my theory about how the world works? So I think doing some of that uh, self-reflection and having curiosity and challenging yourself with new information, I think is, is really important. And don't like, you got to make time for that. We'll all fill our, our calendars up with useless other BS. And that will be far more useful to you in the, in the long run. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. And Jeff. Well, so despite everything I just said about human beings being inherently different, I've got a very similar answer to Steve, which may tell you something about how, how often we, uh, we, we, uh, have spent time together. Um, and I'll, I'll actually just, um, I'll offer it in the form of a famous quote. It's actually not a famous quote. I'm trying to see if I can make Steve laugh because it's actually a quote that's stolen from a poem that I wrote for my kids when I turned a certain age. Um, but, it, but it is a poem that I've learned through the journey that Steve and I have been on in writing together and, and a lot of the observations that, um, that, uh, that we've made together. And, and this part of the poem, this quote, it goes uh, as follows. Meet uncertainty with curiosity and a bias for action instead of worry and a bias for analysis. And so that, that I think as a phrase is one that pops into my head a lot of the time, not just in the work that we're doing, but in my personal life as well, because no matter how much I believe it and um, would like to think that it's, it's a reality of who I am, I struggle with it all the time as well. Yeah, well, we will make it a famous quote. Today, today is the day that it becomes a famous quote. Um, that, that, was, uh, that was great. Jeff, Steven, thank you so much for doing this. Um, it, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having us. That was fun. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app/supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.